Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking about a topic that actually fascinates me today, and that is the role of fear in US politics. Well, it's, it's really used in politics around the world as a way of controlling the population. It's used here in Australia, but it's been very evident, particularly in the last two years under Donald Trump, as a way of controlling the narrative in American politics, Keith. That's right. So what I find fascinating is that, as you say, you've got this emphasis on fear, but at the same time, the actual information you get from a writer like Steven Pinker in his book Enlightenment Now would suggest we're living in the safest of times. So just to, a great article that got me thinking about all this was written in September 2016. So we're talking about the summer of 2016. Before Trump comes into office. Before, well before the election, right? So Molly Ball wrote an article uh, for The Atlantic called Donald Trump and the Politics of Fear, which is available free of charge on the internet. So September 2016, this was at a time when everybody was saying Hillary Clinton was going to win in November. She was clearly very well regarded in the opinion polls and the Republican Party was in disarray. So by September of 2016, the uh, obvious contender, for the November election, Jeb Bush had been knocked out months earlier. All the others have been knocked out. You're really left with Donald Trump as the last person standing. And indeed, most recently, Michael Cohen has actually argued that Donald Trump never expected to win anyway. He was using it as a giant marketing exercise. So what is fascinating is that in September 2016, you get warnings from people like Michael Moore, which we've dealt with. Michael Moore is a filmmaker bowling for Columbine, etc. He's not a Trump supporter, but he comes out of the industrial heartland of the United States. And he was warning the Democrats, be careful of Donald Trump. He is gaining support from traditional Democrat supporters. I didn't know that about Michael Moore. I've seen the recent documentary that he made about Trump, yeah. but I did not know that he warned them before yep. to take so, it seriously. And I was using it. That's how... Uh, on Sunrise and elsewhere, I was warning about a Trump victory. Made me very unpopular, <laughs> but uh, I was warning about the prospect of a Trump victory. Now, what is interesting is that in that context, because I was talking on this recently, somebody else said, well, look, you ought to read this article by Molly Bull in the Atlantic magazine published in September 2016. She was making exactly the same point. Namely that, okay, it looks as though Mrs Clinton's doing well in the opinion polls, but Donald Trump is doing brilliantly at mobilising the politics of fear. And so that's what I have found fascinating, that, that Trump comes from virtually nowhere. If you cast your mind back four years ago in the election cycle, Trump wasn't even being mentioned. Um, if anybody was being mentioned, it was Jeb Bush, the president's brother. The assumption was that he was going to be the Republican contender. And so... Four years ago, no mention of Trump. In September 2016, we end up with Trump as the last person standing, brilliant at marketing, and he found a way of being able to split the traditional Democrat voter base, the blue-collar workers, from supporting Mrs Clinton, namely by focusing on fear. And, of course, one of the major issues that he focused on was the need to build a wall across the, the border between the United States and Mexico. The figures there, by the way, are really quite interesting because there is already a wall over some of that distance. I'll give you some of the figures. 
He wants to build an additional 234 miles to add to the 700 that already exist, right? So there's already a wall over the, the more obvious areas like Tijuana, uh, but a lot of area in the United States where the border is drawn, it's just impossible to try to get there because you'll be walking through a desert to get into the United States and then walking on a desert on the other side. And in, in really inhospitable. Very inhospitable. Yeah, it's interesting as well because that was back then, two years ago. He's still going on about it. And, of course, most recently we've seen him declare it a state of emergency <laughs> yeah. in the US. And one would ask what exactly the emergency is. And, he, you know, he was drumming up that, uh, that there are caravans full of people heading to the border. Now, that was largely discredited, Keith, wasn't it? It is largely discredited. The, the, the peak period for people going into the United States was between the period of the Reagan presidency and the Clinton presidency. So, in fact, in recent years, recent decades, the number has actually declined. Um, so it isn't the same influx. But what is interesting is that Trump was, in effect, although well, he wasn't using the phrase, but we all do in political science, it's the graying of the United States and the browning of the United States. The graying meaning that you've got white Americans living longer but not having children, and the browning of America with the Hispanics who have already got into the United States having the children. And so the United States by at the latest 2050, probably earlier, will be what's called a majority minority population. Now, if you go back to the founding of the United States, it was run by WASPs, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. They are the traditional rulers, right? So um, if you look at the United States presidents right up to and including Donald Trump, they tend to be Protestants. We've had one Catholic, which is John Kennedy, no Jews. So it comes out of a particular sort of demographic. So these are the Wasp Americas, and that Wasp America is disappearing. And so Trump is, was able to mobilise the fear of saying to people, we need to build the wall to keep out the foreigners. Whereas what he's really saying is that we whites are getting outnumbered by the people who are already here. So he's tapping into that fear without making it explicit. So what he's doing is saying, well, we need to build a wall. But the damage is already done because you've got a lot of brown folk already living in the United States and having children. Well, this is the thing, though, Keith. Isn't this just a, a silly method to go about controlling a population that is white in number dwindling Yep. Uh, and therefore the influence is dwindling? Surely his influence with those, you know, it's, it's, he's offending the major majority of the population. Yeah, but don't forget it's voluntary voting. And so a lot of people may not bother to vote. So the important thing about the Trump base, which he has created, originally the Tea Party base and now it's the Trump base, uh, what he's been able to do is to get people who are very loyal to him. And so they will be out trudging in the snow in November for the election in 2020, as they were last year. Remember, Trump still maintained control of the Senate. OK, lost the lower house, still maintained control of the Senate. So it is very interesting how he's been able to do this. Now, what I find fascinating is we've got Trump focusing on fear and the risk of being attacked and all the rest of it. And yet, if you have a mathematical background, a Steven Pinker type figure, for example, Steven Pinker is an American academic who talks about America actually becoming safer. The world generally is becoming safer. So Hans Rosling, um, the late Hans Rosling, talks about people who are living longer now, they're living healthier, 
in many countries around the world, an increasing number of countries, and then Stephen Pinker's figures, which partly recycle Hans Rosling's own figures, but then looks, for example, at the crime rate in the United States, which is also going down. You wouldn't get that impression from Hollywood. <laughs> a lot of this goes back to the media, I've got to say. Or the rates of gun violence. Or the rates of gun violence going down. So it is very interesting. You wouldn't get that impression from the media. The real problem would be the opioid addiction. And I agree with Donald Trump, that is a problem. But then if you go into opioids, you're talking about a legal form of drug. And I would have to say, well, if you're getting worried about a legal form of drug, then you start off with tobacco and then you go down to alcohol and then you go to opioids. So what I find fascinating is that we spend our time talking about a handful of terrorist attacks in the United States, and yet the actual figures show that Americans are living healthier and longer lives now. Generally speaking, there is a a strange downturn amongst the Trump voters. In other words, the white, male and female, middle-aged voters who are not college educated. In other words, they are people who left school at the age of, say, 15, 16, 17, 18, and never went on to some sort of university, what we would call a university education. They are the people in the last few years that have actually shown a declining life expectancy. But overall, in the United States, blacks are living longer, Hispanics are living longer, and most whites are actually living longer. Do we put that in medicine at all? Medicine is, is important because you obviously, in the, under the American health system, remember they are the only developed Western country without a universal health care system. So, yes, it means that if you're fairly rich, you've got access to a good level of health care, which you may not have if you are a poor white living in the hollers of West Virginia. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking today about a fascinating topic, from my perspective anyway, and that is the uh, the use of fear in politics. And it's really been around a very, very long time, Keith. We've seen it most recently in America in terms of Donald Trump using it, scaremongering about the wall and all the Mexicans trying to get into America. And he's fixed on spending billions to build an extra couple of hundred kilometres of wall in really inhospitable lands, and it was warning about, you know, caravans, thousands of caravans of these Mexicans coming up, which didn't exist. But let's look back at fear in politics because you even got someone like Hitler, for example, was able to gain control yep. of that country and build support based on hatred of Jews That's and the right. fear of Jews. So yeah. it's, it's a really sort of an old way of method of controlling people. Oh, absolutely, and it's a very old pattern in American politics So you had an anti-Catholic vote when you had the influx of the Irish coming into 19th century United States. Remember, the United States was a Protestant country, and so you've got the influx of these Catholics coming in who theoretically are answerable to the Pope. And so there was this feeling you'll have people loyal to an overseas leader coming into the United States. And then, of course, you also have the anti-Semitism, which was common in many Western countries. So fear is something which has been important in American politics. Joe McCarthy, um, Wisconsin senator in the late 40s, early 50s, talked about the control of the communists in the US government. We had the same thing happening at exactly the same time here in Australia. The Menzies government tried to argue that it was necessary to outlaw the Communist Party because of the impact of the Communist Party in Australian life. We now know 
that in fact the Labour government beat the Communist Party. By the time Menzies came to power in 1951, that threat was in decline and that it was the Labour government standing up to the militant unions, particularly in the coal fields of New South Wales. It was the Labour government, the Chifley government, who was able to take on the communists and beat them. But often there is a bit of a lag. In other words, the media are very slow to catch up to the fact there is this new trend emerging. So they're just recycling what would be called old tropes, in other words, old themes, because that's what the viewers are used to. Remember, the media are not here to inform. They're here to educate. And so what they're seeking to do is to keep your attention engaged in the media. So you can't run too far ahead of your listeners or viewers, which means you talk to what your listeners or viewers are accustomed to. You speak their language, which is why we often end up with this difference between, say, a perception of the real problems in Australia and what the media spend their time talking about. What's an example of that, Kate? Well, the boat people. Mm. So we don't have a real problem with boat people in this country. Australia is surrounded by a giant moat. Now, we have a handful of people who arrive here by boat. It's a minute percentage of the total asylum seeker population. And yet the media can whip up this frenzy. And we had one parliamentary candidate who said that we had traffic jams in Western Sydney because of the arrival of asylum seekers <laughs> in West Australia. <laughs> oh, God. So it's possible to exploit public gullibility. As I say, you, you've got someone uh, like Stephen Pinker in his books, um, The Better Angels, which looks at the declining use of violence in warfare now, declining number of wars, um, and then most recently his book, Enlightenment Now, which Bill Gates, the computer guy, has said is his favourite book. And Stephen Pinker is just trying to reassure people, look, the situation isn't nearly as bad as you see in the media. So the value of our doing these podcasts is we're able to get around from the mainstream media and their reliance on fear and the gullibility of the consumers because we can stand back and say, look, if you look at the big picture in all of this, there is no real problem of an influx of people moving into the United States. So where to from here then in terms of gullibility? At some point, what percentage of Trump's base realise that there isn't a major problem? I don't think they will. This is the worry. Because Mrs Clinton in her campaign in 2016 tried to recycle the Obama message of hope but didn't do it very well. And I think the reason why it failed is the Obama message of hope, and yes, we can, um, after eight years, clearly had gotten nowhere. And so voters were jaded and they were looking for an alternative type of candidate, not somebody out of the political mainstream. That's why they supported Trump rather than Mrs Clinton and a lot of potential Democrat voters just simply stayed home on the day. So it is actually very difficult to get people to suddenly change. The other thing to bear in mind, I don't know if we've looked at it in this series, is the Dunning-Kruger effect. So Dunning and Kruger are two American academics who have looked at the role of ignorance in life, in public life. And in, in a sense, it was triggered apparently by their interest in a bank robber who squirted lemon juice on his face and robbed a bank and he thought he was invisible because apparently lemon juice can make invisible writing or something. 
And this got them thinking about how people can be so silly. <laughs> and so the Dunning-Kruger effect relates to the fact people not only being stupid, they're too stupid to realise they are stupid. And at the other end of the spectrum, you get the academics who assume that because they know something, everybody else does, and therefore they talk over the heads of their audience. Yeah. But the Trump voters quite often are Dunning-Kruger example. And climate change is the standard example. The number of people who say... I don't believe in climate change. Well, climate change is not a matter of belief. It's a matter of fact. Yeah. And yet uh, you've got these people who don't have a science background who are saying, uh, I don't believe in climate change. This is the Dunning-Kruger effect. It's worth, uh, probably worth a program in its own right just looking at Dunning-Kruger. It's suddenly become, it's an old idea. It's not new. But suddenly everybody's talking about Dunning and Kruger, these two guys, uh, and the research they did years ago looking at the role of ignorance in politics. I love how you just express it so well, ignorance. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, but, but that's definitely worth tr going into down the track. Yeah. But just quickly before we go, how does one counter this politically in the States? Like the next leader, the next person, the, the Democrat leader who's going to take on Trump in the next election, how do you counter that fear? You don't think your way through to a new way of living. You live your way through to a new way of thinking. In other words, that the political worldview, the paradigm, to use the jargon, will change when people's conditions themselves change and that will then force them to look at the world differently. So if you look at what's coming up now with some of the Democrats on the left, they are talking now about a Green New Deal. New Deal, of course, came from the 1930s and the Great Depression. And they're saying a Green New Deal. In other words, finding employment opportunities for, for people in protecting the environment and generating employment. Now, it may well be you'll end up with people saying, yes, I am unemployed, therefore I'm willing to look for alternatives, which is how Roosevelt got his new deal through Congress in the 1930s. So when the conditions start to bite, then people will start to change their views. Perhaps before next year or most likely after? Um, at the moment, you'd have to say after next year, mm. after the presidential election in November 2020. When Trump gets back in again. Exactly. <laughs> well, who knows? Will he get in? We just don't know. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Liv Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.